Imagine, if you can, what life is like for a rabbit. Imagine what it means to be vulnerable all your life. Which is my very poetic way of saying that life's hard for a rabbit. Life's also hard for a small business owner who accidentally witnesses the death of God. But I'd rather start with the rabbit. This particular story begins with a rabbit who is called... Hmm, let me come back to what he was called. The Speech of the Sprites. I'm a wood sprite, you see. Is a very old tongue. It was never known by the wood folk or the river folk. Even the fearsome and venerable mountain folk have long since forgotten it. But it is still the tongue in which all life forms that lack the organs of speech can commune, and we, the wood sprites, hear all. The name of this particular rabbit in the speech of the sprites is best translated as Mr. Fluffy Toes. Mr. Fluffy Toes had been having a good day. He had eaten a few solid meals and avoided detection by an owl through skillful burrowing. He had taken to foraging for another meal in the magical din of the nocturnal forest. So you can imagine his disappointment when, out of nowhere, an arrow flew through his ribcage and punctured his liver. You've got to be shitting me, thought Mr. Fluffy Toes, approximately. It couldn't have been at least a decent hunter? At least owls know how to stun and kill quickly. In his defense, the bowman, who was called Peter of Brimshire, never claimed to be a good hunter. Peter owned an inn which was in a rather remote location. Apparently, Peter of Brimshire had never heard the adage, location, location, location. And if truth be told, Peter was not very smart. A decent man, to be sure, but not what you might call sharp. Indeed, Peter was not nearly as smart relative to other men as Mr. Fluffy Toes was relative to other rabbits. It actually makes the whole thing seem kind of unfair. Then again, Peter was not nearly as prolifically successful a procreator as Mr. Fluffy Toes, so win some, lose some. But I digress. Peter of Brimshire would not normally have been out hunting, least of all at this hour. But the remoteness of Peter's inn meant that when a nobleman of no small wealth and power asked for a room... Peter was strongly inclined to cater to his every whim, including his bizarre request for rabbit stew in the middle of the night. He was actually surprised when he made the shot. He had removed the arrow and was about to start skinning the mortal remains of the late Mr. Fluffy Toes when the faint orange glow of fire off in the distance caught his attention. He crept clumsily towards the glow and found it to be coming from a clearing. Peeking into the clearing, he saw a vat of burning oil casting an angry orange light around the trees. From among the trees emerged a figure in a black hooded cloak, its face invisible. Peter quickly ducked back into hiding and then slowly peeked back out. 
dozens more cloaked figures emerged from the woods and gathered around the edge of the clearing. Four broke through the crowd, dragging behind them a man in chains. It was all Peter could do not to cry out in alarm, for the chained man was the very nobleman who had sent him out rabbit hunting, the crest of House Gwernathal emblazoned proudly on his chest. It occurred to Peter that this entire hunting trip had been for naught. It did not occur to Peter that, had he not gone hunting, he would have been at his inn when the scary cloaked things came to abduct his guest. As I said, not too clever, that Peter of Brimshire. Where was I? Oh, yes, the figures in cloaks. They drew Peter's wealthy guest down and nailed his chains to the ground with iron stakes so that his limbs were splayed apart. Two of the wraith-like things knelt by his wrists with daggers, while a third one, larger than the rest, unsheathed a two-handed sword. Peter's sense of duty overcame his earlier selfish thoughts. He could not sit idly by while the High Prince, his High Prince, was murdered. With a shaking hand, he reached for an arrow. That's when the fear paralyzed him. Because at that moment, an awed silence came over the cloaked congregation. They parted to make way for another figure, slight of stature and feminine of gait. Her appearance was not what petrified Peter, but rather the staff she carried. It was sharpened at the bottom, and the markings on it were wrong. The shapes on it were not things that should be, at least in Peter's mind. She removed her hood, but her back was to Peter. She was too far away for Peter to hear the following exchange, but we sprites, as I said, hear all. Not your most imaginative work. You haven't seen the interesting part yet. See you soon, my dear. Will you now? The woman nodded, and with chilly resolve, her minions opened the chained man's wrists as the greatsword came down on his neck. The pointed end of the eldritch staff pierced his heart. The last thing Peter of Brimshaw's eyes ever saw was a flash of brilliant light. Somewhere, not so very far away, a newborn infant slid through a flash of brilliant light and into the world. The Once and Future Nerd Book 1 Princes of Jordan Chapter 1 The Prince of Jordan Episode 1 Until indicated otherwise, what follows is admittedly hearsay. I have it from a friend sprite, a toilet seat bacteria sprite, if you must know. For indeed, even among the sprites, some draw the short straw career-wise. But my friend is honest and not overly prone to exaggeration, 
so I shall relay her story to you, and you may take it as salted as you please. My friend lives in a land that is called Northeast Pennsylvania by its inhabitants. In this land, there is a school, and in this school there is a bathroom with several toilet stalls. The story my friend told begins with a boy and a girl in one of those toilet stalls. They had 17 and 16 years and were called Billy and Jen, respectively. He wore a red and gold jacket, which signified his captaincy of the school's football team. And she wore the traditional garments of what is called a cheerleader, also in red and gold. They were both quite handsome and well-formed of body, and were thus drawn to each other as humans of that age are wont to be. Are you sure about this, Billy? Babe, I told you it'd be alright, didn't I? But, but what if... Billy pulled her in for a kiss, and she quickly forgot her reservations. Until, that is, the door of the bathroom flew open. Several athletes marched in, teammates of Billy's in fact, carrying another boy by the collar of his red button-down short-sleeved shirt. This boy was called Nelson. He had 16 years, dark skin, and wore spectacles. The athletes threw him down onto the windowsill. You fucked me over, you little shit. I was counting on your answers to pass pre-calc. Now I can't play this weekend. Nelson knew it was in his best interest to remain silent or possibly apologize, but could not stop himself from blurting out, I'm not even good at math. Maybe you should do your own work. What the fuck was that? You gotta watch your mouth, faggot. Nelson looked frantically for some means of escape. He saw a device built for alerting people to a fire and activated it. An ear-piercing bell rang out. Shit, man, we should bail. We'll get you later, Queermo. As the athletes scattered, Nelson breathed a sigh of relief. Billy popped his head out of the toilet stall. The hell's going on out here? In marched a stern-looking man who was called Archibald Connor, but who demanded the students call him Principal Connor. Billy and Jen dove back into their stall and closed the door before he saw them. For what they had been doing was counter to rules enforced by Archibald Connor. What in God's name? Nelson, who pulled that alarm? Connor looked on the floor under the stall, but could only see Billy's legs. Is that you, Williams? It's me, Principal Connor, sir. Connor reached up to the wall and shut off the warning device. Did you set off that alarm, Williams? It was me. Nonsense, son. Don't insult my intelligence. But Principal Connor... I'll hear no more of it. You don't have to cover for him. Captain of the football team isn't above the rules. But it really was me. You see, I was... It was! Well, I must say, I'm very disappointed in you. I was more than happy to set you up with counseling for your trouble socializing and poor grades. Well, I do my... But we can't stand for you endangering other students. For shame. Oh, well. Detention for you. But it was only in self-defense... No excuses, young man. We've got a zero-tolerance policy here. If I make an exception for you, I'll need to make one for everyone. Hey, Williams, I also need to talk to that idiot sinner of yours. He hasn't been in here recently, has he? Just me. You want to help me hold it? Enraged by this show of disrespect, Connor burst into an adjacent stall, climbed onto the toilet, and peered over the divider 
to see Jen crouched on top of the toilet. She looked mortified. Now, in the land of northeast Pennsylvania, students were commonly punished by being forced to stay at school when their classmates had left, typically while confined to a particularly boring area of the school. For those wishing to learn more about this custom, my friend tells me the definitive text on the matter was penned by a bard called John Hughes. So it was that Billy, Jen, and Nelson found themselves incarcerated in the library of Valley Central High School one fateful afternoon. With them were their personal effects, namely Billy's sporting armor or football pads, Jen's collection of assorted accoutrements in a handbag, and Nelson's gaming token which was called a D20 by those skilled in its use, and which he wore in a vial around his neck. Also with them, less importantly, was one more detained student who... Well, let's just call him a herbalist who had become overfond of certain plants. On a library table in front of Nelson were several writing utensils, which Nelson had arranged in order of size and colour. For you see, a tiny part of Nelson's mind, the part that men cannot or will not speak of, feared that if certain things were not in a certain order, some calamity would befall him. But more on that later. Jen examined herself in a small looking-glass or compact, and fixed her hair nervously. This is bullshit. I need to be at practice. I can't believe he caught us making out. Oh my god, Shannon's never gonna let me live this down. Jen threw her compact into her handbag. I told you she was a bitch. Yeah, but she's still captain. She's captain because she's a bitch. She's captain because she's skinnier than me. Nah, babe. You're way prettier. Girls just love picking on each other. Hey. Why'd you have to pull that alarm? I should kick your nerd ass. Your teammates were in the process of assaulting me. I didn't even know you were in there. Nelson grimaced again at his own candor. Hey, watch your tone. Nelson lowered his eyes and kept them down. The herbalist removed a dessert infused with his favorite plant from his backpack and took a bite. He must have did something to deserve it anyway. Aw, uh, Billy, I don't think Nelson meant to cause trouble. Hey! I don't need you taking his fucking side. Jen also lowered her eyes. We don't need you to throw so many fucking interceptions. The fuck did you just say, Dennis? My guild needs me. What? My World of Warcraft guild is going on a huge raid in 12 minutes and they're counting on me. I'm the raid leader. Billy stared at him for a few seconds before making a hand gesture that simulated self-gratification. I can't believe I'm thinking of doing this, but... Maybe I can give Charles my login? As Nelson got up and walked towards a machine called a computer, there was a flash of lightning and a rumble of thunder. At least you're not missing practice anymore. Fuck that. I'm not scared of some rain. God damn it. Principal Connor must have had him cut off the internet after school hours. Jen pulled some lipstick out of her handbag and applied it. Nelson, in his frustration, proceeded to make an obnoxious racket on the computer machine. Fuck, shit, fuck, come on! You're a nerd. Can't you just reroute the encryptions or some shit like that and shut up about it? Oh, oh, I see. 
You must have been taken in by the popular misconception that everyone smart knows how to hack a computer. Or that computer hacking is magic. Or that in encryptions are a thing that can be rerouted. It was a particularly violent thunderclap, which startled Jen into dropping her lipstick and somehow extinguished the lights. My friend has not explained to me how exactly this happens. Everyone, stay calm. I always have a flashlight in my backpack. Nelson walked back to his table and rummaged through his belongings. Did anyone see where my lipstick fell? Jen got up to look. Some real quality shit you got in here, Connor. I think it rolled over here somewhere. She bent down to look for it under some desks. I got it. The lights popped back on, and as Nelson looked up, his eyes were drawn straight to Jen's posterior, which she was holding up in the air as she looked for her lipstick. Billy's attention was similarly captured. But as soon as he realized that Nelson was looking... Hey! Jen started at this eruption, jumped up, and bumped her head. Ow! Shit! What the fuck, you little perv? Oblivious to Jen, Billy grabbed Nelson's collar with one hand and made the other into a fist. What do you take me for, looking at my woman like that? Jen ran over and got between them. Billy, take it easy. You stay out of this, Jenny. Despite the imminent threat of bodily harm, Nelson's gaze had drifted out the window, where he realized that the sun was out and the sky was bluer than he had ever seen it. Then, there was an enormous thundercrack. The sky changed back to stormy. A lightning bolt burst through the window and immolated Billy, Jen and Nelson and their belongings in a blinding pillar of light. As the light faded away, an unnatural fire broke out in the library, spread and then extinguished as quickly as it had appeared. At this point, I'm told, the herbalist very quickly put away his dessert and looked around warily for several moments. Thus concludes the hearsay portion of this story, at least for a while. I can tell you firsthand about the bedchambers of Dagmar Guernatal, nay Greenhorn, who was called High Queen of the Human Realms of Jordan. I can tell you of how the curtains were drawn, and the lavish room dank and dark, on the day that her lifeblood ran out of her womb. I can tell you about the philosopher who held a mirror under her pale nose, hoping against his better knowledge to see it fog. And I can tell you about Brennan, the baseborn warrior whose battlefield exploits as a young man had earned him a generalship and a seat at the High King's right hand and not a few scars but never lands or a title. And now, in his sixth decade of life, it fell to Brennan to tell Gunther Guernatal, who was called High King of the Human Realms of Jordan, of his young wife's untimely demise. King Gunther had reached his seventh decade, but not easily. His body was sound for his age, but his face had the weary look of a man who has seen too much tragedy. When Brennan told him of his queen, he winced as though he had just been mortally wounded. And the child? I am sorry, Your Grace. You know I grieve with you. Why, old friend? Why has Galadin forsaken us? Soldiers cannot concern themselves with the will of the gods, only that of their king. They will come, General. Yes, Your Grace, as soon as they find out. 
How long to mobilize and arm the reserves? The fortune on our sides, two or three days. Then we must conceal it at least that long. The Tarlow Hill must not find out. Station our most loyal men at the gates. No one in or out of the inner hold without my orders. It will be done, Your Grace. And Brennan, tell all our patrolmen garrison in the village. Be on high alert for any unfamiliar travelers. And it was around that time that there was a flash in the sky above a forest a few miles from Guernatal's castle. Down tumbled three young human bodies, their falls slowed by the branches and bramble. Slowed enough that the impact wasn't fatal, but not so much that they didn't lose consciousness when they hit the ground. And as you may have guessed, if you've a flair for the dramatic, those bodies belonged to Billy, Jen, and Nelson. For additional information and bonus content, access onceandfuturenerd.com on your computer machine. The Once and Future Nerd is written and created by Zach Glass and Christian Madeira, and directed and edited by Christian Madeira. It is performed by Garrett Armin, Hayes Dunlop, Anya Gibeon, Ian Harkins, Emily Kukuk, Frank Queris, Julie Reed, Perry Strong, and Dylan Uremovich. It is co-executive produced by Jess Kelly, with mixing and sound design by Gary O'Keefe, and original score by Tom Lee. Thanks for downloading 